if you do truly want something, if you are pursuing a path, if you're pursuing a career, a project, a, a, a dream, that so much of the time, the important thing is really just to go after it. Welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show today. And today we're really excited to have as our guest Genevieve Custer-Week. She's a former ballet dancer and now founder and CEO of the Tutu School Franchises. Welcome, Genevieve. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, I will. You kind of summed it up in a nutshell. I am a retired uh, ballet dancer and now the CEO of Chuchu School, which is a collection of boutique ballet schools for young children. We have um, 45 locations that are open or opening um, across the country and uh, we'll soon be expanding into Canada too. Wow, that's incredible. So uh, we're really excited to have you on the show because I feel like there's just so much we can talk about with you and learn from you both as a ballet dancer and as a, a business owner and entrepreneur. So uh, maybe just tell us how your start, story starts. You know, how did you even get into ballet? Yeah, I think um, my story, it's interesting because where my story started as a ballet dancer is very tied to then what led me to want to start Choo Choo School now as a business. I was just that kid who was always, you know, whatever music my parents had on in the living room, I was dancing to it, I was moving to it. That was um, so formative for me, was this idea that I could have a space where I could just explore music and movement. And it, it wasn't something I thought about, it was, it was just what my natural impulse was and something that brought me a lot of joy and something that later as an adult, I would reflect on and feel like, wow, that was really, um, pretty foundational that was really fundamental to kind of helping me figure out who I was and to getting in touch with creativity and um and possibility so I think I was just that kid who was always moving and so my parents very naturally put me in dance lessons then um and then it it um it became clear pretty quickly that I wanted to do it seriously um so I grew up in Madison Wisconsin and at the time there weren't really um, there, were, there weren't very many opportunities there for serious ballet study. There's, there's more now. Um, so when I was 15, I moved to Chicago. I would be there during the week and go home on the weekend so I could study professionally at the School of Ballet Chicago um, and did most of my formal training there. And then um, a few years on from that, got a, a job with Oakland Ballet out in California and moved out there to dance with them. They unfortunately ran into some... Um, financial difficulties. So I ended up staying in San Francisco where I was living when I was dancing with Oakland Ballet, but freelancing for, for the bulk of my um, career, freelancing around the, the country. And while I was doing that, that was sort of when I had this, um, this realization that I, I was in between gigs and rehearsing for, for different jobs. I was teaching at different schools and I really realized that a, I loved, 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 loved working with the youngest dancers at these schools. I just thought it was magical. Um, but then from a business perspective that they were really neglected. So um, 
it was kind of like at traditional dance schools, even though, you know, a lot of us think of like th adorable three-year-olds in tutus <laughs> in a traditional dance school. A lot of times it's just sort of like, hey, somebody go teach those three-year-olds on a Saturday morning. <laughs> there isn't a ton of thought put into the curriculum for them or, you know, how you might be approaching working with them. And, and so looking at that, you even, you know, could see pretty easily that it was like typically the studios were kind of intimidating for young dancers. They're sort of big cavernous warehousey spaces with a lot of older dancers. Um, the curriculum for the older dancers was really focused on like pretty intense training, um, sometimes a lot of different styles. And I had this idea like what if we could have a boutique ballet school where every aspect of the program would really be tailored to young dancers where you could really focus every single thing you did on you know, I'm using the three-year-old as an example, but maybe even starting younger than that, as we do now at Chichu School, we start 18 months, and going up to about eight years old, which is when, if you're gonna study more seriously, you need to, um, you need to, to start focusing on that. And then you could really make sure that everything from the teacher training to the environment in the studio, um, the curriculum, all of the branding that would initially invite people in, that every single part of the curriculum, that the, the whole program, the whole package would really be focused on these young dancers as opposed to just sort of sticking them somewhere. And the, I mean, another key part of that that I noticed was those classes that were pretty neglected at traditional dance schools were the ones that were full. They were the ones that were on waiting lists. They were, you know, actually a huge draw. They just weren't the focus of most of those schools. Um, and so that was really where the idea of Chichu School was born, and I, I started the first one while I was still dancing professionally. Kept dancing for a few years afterwards, still doing gig work um, while I was was opening the first two Chichu schools. And um, and I'm so glad that I did because it was it ended up being a, a really amazing way to transition out of a performing career in ballet and still stay so connected to um, to this art form that I love. That is awesome. Um, and it's going to be very cool to kind of profile out your story as a, a ballet dancer yourself and then think about, you know, what now that looks like uh, as a business owner and franchise owner. But take us back way to the beginning. What age did you actually start dancing at? I mean, so I took, I, I was taking classes that were, um, you know, not formal training, but exploring movement starting as young as, as two or three. Um, and then more serious studies started around eight, kind of, you know, like I was saying, when, when study really would. Um, and then because of where I was, it was really a matter of kind of trying to, to piece together classes. My parents and some other parents of students who were trying to study seriously in the area would like coordinate these carpools to drive, you know, fairly long distances to get us the classes that we needed um, for those of us that were trying to, to study ballet more seriously. And then it was, I was um, 15 when I, when I went to Chicago and that was, um, you know, really when my, my formal training was starting. I was in the summers, it's pretty typical for former, for um, professional, pre-professional ballet students to also go off to summer programs at different companies and institutions. So I was doing that as well. I studied at the Kennedy Center for two summers with Suzanne Farrell and American Ballet Theater in New York and um, San Francisco Ballet School for a couple summers too. So that was sort of, it was a combination of all of those things that, that ended up making up my formal training. But the bulk of it was was in Chicago, which is where I live now. What, when you think about that timing from, let's, let's start, I guess, with kind of when you start, when you initially started to when you start taking it seriously, what stands out about what your experience was like or what you were thinking at that time? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of what I, I think about now at Chichu School and our sort of our mission and, and what we try and root everything in is how to keep 
um, it's first of all how to tap into that, that inherent joy that children feel when they are connecting with music and movement. Um, because it is something that, you know, as the training got more serious, um, you know, from that period of like eight into adolescence, because then starting in your teenage years and hopefully you're getting to start rehearsing for things and, and getting some performance experience too, which is a very natural way to get to experience that again. But the training part of it can be um, pretty grueling and, and can sometimes, you know, whether it's, it's, I don't think it's intentional, <laughs> but can sometimes really sort of almost train out of these kids, the joy that first pulled them in. Um, so that's something that I feel very sort of fiercely protective of now at Choo School is, you know, cause it, there is this whole sort of impulse, I think just in society and, um, you know, we could go off on a tangent about helicopter parents and everything too. I'm a parent myself, so I understand the idea that we all want to make sure our children are getting everything they need and achieving and all these things. But it's interesting to see how young it starts that parents are sort of wondering, like, are they getting the technical instruction they should? And, and are, are they focusing in the right ways when it's like, well, but you know what, a, you know, a five-year-old's job in a dance class is really to lose themselves in a piece of Tchaikovsky. You know, like there'll be plenty of time to work on proper alignment and turnout later. And it's not that we don't introduce and work on those things, um, but that, that that truly isn't the most important thing. And I do think that when I look back on those years for myself, sort of that, those bridge years, like the gap of getting from like the initial falling in love with ballet to what took me into having a career, it was, there was some sort of constant tension with that, with the idea of, it's really hard <laughs> when you get into the, the formal training and how you maintain a connection to what it is that first made you fall in love with it um, to make sure that it stays worth it. So did you know at early on um, was the goal, even at that age, to eventually become professional or did that come at a later phase? I, I, re I remember it becoming pretty clearly distilled for me at like around 13. Like I remember kind of feeling like I was making that choice and that it, that was, that really felt like an age where, you know, a lot was happening socially. Um, for you know at school and and things like that too where there were suddenly beginning to be lots of polls on my time and times where i would have to choose to go to ballet instead of going and hanging out with friends and that it did it, even though that sounds like such a young point at which to say okay i'm <laughs> committing to a career that i did sort of feel that that it was like okay i know that if i want to do this this is at the, this is a point at which like it really has to continue full full throttle and yet that that will mean saying no to a lot of other things. <clears throat> so I do have a pretty clear memory of being that age. I remember being on a vacation with my family and reading um, a biography of a ballet dancer and kind of thinking, okay, I'm, I'm choosing to do this and I'm scared because I think it's going to be really hard. And I'm um, only 13, choosing a life course. I'm only 13. <laughs> um, yeah. And, I, and that I was also very, I, I think I was really aware, even at that young age, of how unlikely it was. Like I knew that it was going to be, um, <clears throat> it was going to be a real challenge. I knew that not very many people had a career in professional ballet, a performing career. And, um, and I was mostly just sort of being the like firstborn perfectionist that I was. <laughs> I think a big part of my fear was the idea that I was choosing something that I might not ultimately be successful at and that felt really big at such a young age too to be know, to know that I was picking something where I might work really hard and go after it and that still might not be enough but yeah I think I think it was about 13. 
And so how did, how did your parents get pulled kind of into mm -hmm. this conversation? Cause you said about, you know, two years later, you actually, you know, go to school for this in a different city. Yeah, no, they were, my parents were a really amazing balance of um, being very supportive because so much of, of what I needed to do to really pursue it, you know, and involved their support, whether it was, um, you know, financially paying for all these lessons and summer programs and auditions or just physically driving me places. Um, and yet, and, and so they were obviously invested in it, but they were never, you know, sort of like this, the scary <laughs> stereotypes you see of like stage parents or dance moms or whatever. There was, there were boundaries there that they were clear it was my dream and something I was pursuing. And they, they, um, they were always very concerned about my mental health and well-being. So I do think they were also a good check um, you know, it, when things could get tricky. Mm -hmm. um, but so I, I was pretty convinced that I did want to go away for high school, that I, I felt like I needed to go study at a, um, a conservatory, a professional ballet school to have a real shot at it. And I remember my dad was very attached to the idea of me having a traditional high school experience, mm -hmm. you know, and that I was not going to give that up. Um, and I think in the back of their mind too, there was, there was always this sense of the unlikelihood of of a career like as much as they knew I was going to go for it as much as they believed in me they also knew just you know sort of statistically how unlikely it was and so he was really attached to that and I ended up staying at home for my my freshman year and my mom would drive me to Chicago at least every three weeks um, on the weekend starting on Friday I would come out of school and then during periods where we were rehearsing for something it would be even every week which now the crazy thing to me is, so my mom is an entrepreneur too. She is a financial planner who's owned her own firm for the whole time that I've been alive. And I now as an entrepreneur myself, I can't wrap my brain around the idea that she could just take you with Friday and be like, I'm going to go to Chicago over the weekend. mind-blowing that she managed to do that. And this was before, you know, we could all be as connected as we are now. Yeah. Um, and, and it was really over the course of that freshman year where my dad started seeing how hard it was for me to juggle um, trying to be a normal teenager and have this social life in high school that I really didn't. And then I was starting to really form these incredible relationships with the dancers I was dancing with in Chicago who were in the same boat that I was, that they were pursuing this career, um, that his shifting really, um, or his thinking really shifted. And I, I remember going for a walk with him one night after I'd had like this huge blow up with my best friends in Madison and he and he'd really seen like some of the tension that I was trying to straddle these two worlds and that wasn't really possible and he said I think you know I think I see it and I think you should you know if you still want to you should move to Chicago next year so it was my it was my sophomore year that I ended up going so I they kind of had to come to it on their own terms but they were always very supportive and I think just always trying to balance the tension of wanting some normalcy for me and, and wanting me to be well-rounded and have, again, mental and physical health <laughs> while pursuing this, um, this thing that was, was pretty intense. What was it like when you first started uh, training at this school? It was, I think it was amazing. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm actually on the, the board now of um, Ballet Chicago, which is the school I trained at. So that feels pretty special because I get to come full circle now and still be a, a part of seeing other students and young dancers go through this. Mm -hmm. The thing that makes Ballet Chicago so special and made it so special then is a huge part of their program is performing. They have um, an enormous rep, uh, repertoire of Balanchine ballets and that I, George Balanchine is my favorite choreographer and I think his, his um, dancing his ballets is 
that's an education unto itself. It's transformative. And a lot of, so we're at a lot of schools, if you're 15 or 16, you're mostly just going to be in classes. You're going to be, you know, drilling and um, very hardcore training. Um, and we were doing all of that, but then sort of our reward was we were getting to rehearse and perform these incredible ballets, even though we were so young. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I mean, every venue you can imagine, it's not like it was always glamorous. <laughs> like we were, and this, um, this studio company of teenagers, we you know performed everywhere from like nursing homes and shopping malls up, up to and including beautiful theaters. <laughs> um, but that was, that was such great training. I mean, that was being able to go and and see like, oh, wow, that's the stage. Okay, that's what we're dancing on. And um, and then also to no matter where you were and no matter what the audience that you were, were giving it 100% and, and finding something special in the, the choreography and the music to to present to the people that were there, that, that was almost as formative, I think, as anything. So that was really, that's what still stands out to me the most about that time that um, the directors there, Daniel Duell and um, Patricia Blair, are incredible teachers and they they form and make incredible dancers and my class of dancers was filled with my generation there was just so many talented people um and so it really became like this family um that that was really important to me emotionally we're also very close um and then but then also to just kind of from a training perspective to be surrounded by so many people who are like really uniquely talented but in very different ways we were none of us were you know, cookie cutter carbon copies of each other. We were all very much individuals as dancers. Um, really pushed us all further and was was also really inspiring, even if, you know, we were also a little bit competitive with one another too. <laughs> I'm curious, was there any, uh, what was it like when you met your cohort? Was it, uh, were you, did you have jitters? Were you nervous? Was, was there filling each other out? Was there, uh, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, I think it, so. It happened over sort of a period of time, as new like dancers would kind of come in at different periods of time. So there wasn't like a moment where we all met and like this is you know this is our class. It happened over a period of a couple of years that that sort of my my class at Ballet Chicago um, accumulated there. Um, but there was definitely a period of feeling each other out. I think at different points, you know, where you would say, you know, who's the new dancer and <laughs> are they going to start getting all the parts? And and certainly we were teenagers so again we were also like we could be very competitive with each other um but what I mostly remember is that we did you know it was so bonding to be pursuing something that seriously and that intensely at such a young age when you are a teenager too so you're already on this roller coaster um that we did just become so close living through that together um so they really I mean um I'm really lucky that I have close friends from all different periods of my life those the friends that I was on the phone with um, having the blowout fight in Madison that led my dad to say I could move to Chicago <laughs> are still some of my best friends to this day. Um, but then the sort of the next cluster of friends that I really rely on for um, support as well, um, they're all from that Valley Chicago class. I mean, it's really crazy how, how close so many of us have stayed, but I think it's because we were like in the trenches together as teenagers, um, you know, in, in such an intense time. And competing against each other for roles and for attention and for spots in summer programs, but all ultimately pursuing this, the same goal. Um, and, and just really, you know, growing and learning alongside each other, even when it was difficult. How much time of your day was spent practicing at this point? 
So much. We, so we would do school in the morning, um, most of us on correspondence courses, but some of the kids who were able to live somewhat locally, like maybe in the surrounding areas, would some of them still attended physical high school and lived in Chicago itself. And then we would all be at the studio by two o'clock um, to start classes on weekdays. And then we could be there into the early evening hours on weekdays. Um, we'd stay later on Fridays and then we were there all day Saturday um, for rehearsals as well. And then if we were getting ready for a show, we might be there Sunday too, and then we would usually get Monday off. But so we were usually there six days a week, um, you know, from anywhere from, you know, three days would be, or three hours a day would be a super light day just for training. So usually it would be more like, you know, four to as much as six or seven. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. What were some of the things that you found easy and challenging throughout that time period? I think, so there's, it's so interesting now, like now that I'm retired and there are things that I really miss about, <laughs> about but I mean, I knew there would be things that I missed because I loved it so much when I was in it, but you, it's weird how once you step outside of it, there are new things you didn't appreciate while you were doing it, so you miss them more. Um, I think that because, again, um, sort of firstborn perfectionist, it was always very difficult for me <laughs> to put aside the idea that I needed that success was always being the soloist out front, right? Like I did feel like I needed to um, to, to be always pushing for that. Um, and yet a lot of my most favorite moments and the things that I, that I think were the most formative and the things that, you know, I would sort of give anything to go back and do again now were the times when you would be in the court of ballet and just again, dancing some incredible balancing ballet to some amazing movement and because you didn't have sort of the stress <laughs> and the intensity of I'm the person out front, mm -hmm. you could, it, you could, it could become more meditative, I think, than, than a lot of the soloist roles and, and really just as intense. Um, and so I think if I could go back and talk to a 16 year old version of myself, I would tell her to appreciate that more. I mean, I still think I, I still think I did, but I think that um, and maybe, you know, part of my path still had to be chasing all the, the principal roles too. So maybe it wouldn't have worked out well if I tamped that down. Um, but I, but now, you know, as an adult, I really realized how special those experiences were because you, you could just sort of, you know, focus on what was most sort of the, the purest version of like that, that child in the living room why I got involved in dance in the first place was easier to tap into when I was doing um, those parts in the core that, you know, would also be the source of like a lot of drama <laughs> if it was, you know, I didn't get the soloist role or my friend got it ahead of me and so I'm in the core instead. And it's like, you know, now as an adult, I'd give anything to go back and, and just have like a rehearsal doing one of those core parts because you realize how, how special those opportunities are too. How much, so when you do have a performance, um, how much time is spent rehearsing and preparing once you've actually got a performance to do that for? Yeah, so, I mean, so much. Something that was, was special about Ballet Chicago and how much we were performing is that there would be sort of certain ballets and things that we would just always be rehearsing and then could kind of like fine tune to take out for specific 
specific shows. And then sometimes you would have very specific performances that you would be like have a, a real rehearsal period for. And certainly when I started dancing professionally, um, usually that was the way we worked was um, whether it was at Oakland Ballet or whether it was um, a guesting gig, you know, we would have a rehearsal period where we would be performing for um, a specific um, preparing for a specific performance. Um, so then those could be anywhere from, you know, like six, six weeks would usually be pretty typical um, leading up to it, but sometimes you have to get something ready faster. And I always think that's interesting too. I mean, when it comes down to it, you, you can actually get ready for a performance pretty quickly and even a pretty daunting performance pretty quickly. So it does, um, I think if you're, you know, if you're doing like full length ballets, three act ballets, um, it, it, you, there's some of it is just the very real stamina of like getting ready for a performance. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of the psychological preparation, sometimes it is interesting to, to see it's like when you only have a little bit of time, you end up, you just do it, <laughs> you know, where it's like, time to think is sometimes good. Yeah. <laughs> Like that would happen too, that somebody would get injured and you get thrown into something you hadn't mm -hmm. planned on doing. Um, and it's interesting to see, I mean, kind of like, um, you know, something that I, I do think about now with entrepreneurialism and, and having a business is like, of course, we all always want these big lead up times, um, but it's not always possible. And, and the reality is like, when you have to do it, you, you find a way. So tell us about the, that transition, you know, coming out of school and, and making the transition. Tell us what that was like and, and what's the next part of the story here. So, so yeah, so I, um, I sort of in, in the middle of uh, finishing my training with, at the School of Valley Chicago, but then when I was ready to go do like a, a big audition tour and, and try and get my first job around that time that I was first doing that, I had a, a nagging injury that just wouldn't go away in my ankle. And they figured out that they thought that I had a bone spur that was triggering that. And so it was a pretty straightforward surgery to just go in and have that removed. And so I did, and then I just didn't recover the way that I was supposed to. So the year that I was sort of supposed to be going out and doing all these auditions and trying to get a job, um, ended up, I ended up spending it, you know, just bouncing back and forth between physical therapists in New York and Chicago and trying to get healthy again, um, which was really challenging. I was about 18 years old, you know, until all my friends were getting ready to graduate and go off to college. And I was, you know, not really officially graduating from anywhere. <laughs> I eventually finished high school and correspondence courses, but it was just this, um, this injured dancer who was telling everyone I was going to get a job in ballet at some point. Um, and so that was really, really challenging. And then um, I, but I did, I did end up um, coming back from that and, um, and recovering. It was, it was a long, a long period. And, and basically they had just determined eventually that I just had so much scar tissue in there from all the years of pushing through the injury that it just took longer than we would have liked. And so then the following year is when I ended up doing my audition um, tour. You typically dance companies do auditions like in the spring, in the you know, early part of the new year, um, and then through the spring for the, the next season so that um, everyone comes back after the summer and the fall for the, the following season. So you kind of, if you miss one season, you can't, it's not like you can just try and get a job. Okay. You kind of have to wait a whole nother um, and that was when I got a contract with Oakland Ballet. And so then that was when um, 
I moved out to San Francisco with my, my boyfriend at the time and now my husband and, um, and then just, we stayed there for 13 years. We never left. So was with Oakland Ballet for a few seasons. Again, they, they ran into financial difficulties, which was pretty devastating since we'd relocated across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, and also because I really loved the dancers and artists that I was working with there. Um, but I, I started freelancing and it, one of the things that happened that was very lucky for me was at the same time that Oakland was folding, um, it's back now, but in kind of a different incarnation. Um, in my hometown in Madison, uh, Pleasant Roland, who was the founder of American Girl, I don't know if you know the American mm -hmm. Girl dolls, uh, yep. she had sold her company, she's from Madison, and she sold her company to Mattel. And she and her husband um, had done quite well with that sale and are huge supporters of the community in Madison. And her husband gave over $200 million to the city of Madison to make this new arts facility. And so a lot of the freelancing that I did to bring my life sort of full circle <laughs> ended up being that I would get brought in as a guest artist to come back to um, Madison Ballet in Madison. And they had a, a full symphony and this beautiful new theater and these gorgeous um, productions um, with uh, a man who became my really good friend, Earl Smith, as a director. So I was able to end up, you know, along with some other freelancing other places, that was sort of how I finished out my whole career. Again, a little bit ironically, since I left Madison at 15, <laughs> I ended up finishing performing there um, at home in a lot of ways. And I, I ended up doing my actual retirement performance when I did retire, um, was on that stage in Madison. So that was, it was, it, I often feel very, very lucky that, um, that things worked out that way. Not to take you kind of way back to before that, but I, the question I, I have about the, the year that you were coming back from the, the surgery and injury, what, were you able to maintain that uh, motivation and belief that, okay, I'm going to come back next year? Or were there any times where you questioned that? I definitely questioned it. I think that that year and then the year after that, when I was um, doing auditions, uh, were both, you know, just incredibly challenging. Um, it ended up, I mean, all, all together between the like auditions, the surgery, and then, and then doing my real audition tour, I think it ended up being a period of about, you know, three seasons then, because I think I'd done sort of some like preliminary auditions, then had the injury, and then had to put off my real audition tour for a whole another year. So it was this period of like three years of being like, am I really going to get a job? <laughs> this, this, this whole thing that I've been working towards all these years, this thing that I knew at 13 was so unlikely, but was going to go for anyway. Um, and I did, I, I spent a lot of time really trying to get in touch with why it was that I was doing it because otherwise it just seemed, um, you know, w what was the point? And it was interesting because it was obviously also the time that all my other peers were going through it to a certain extent too. And so I also saw a lot of my other, the friends that I'd grown up with making other choices, either getting jobs, getting contracts that I was envious of because I wanted one too, or, um, and, and also obviously felt very happy for them about, but it was like, when's mine gonna come? Um, or saw, saw some friends that were, you know, I thought were more talented than I was, had um, better facilities, were, you know, physical facilities, were, had it, I thought would have a better chance at getting a contract than I did, make different choices, you know, either get injured themselves and say like, you know what, I'm done, or just say, I'm, you know, I'm done with, I'm just done with this now, I, I don't wanna do this. 
um, I'm gonna go to college. <laughs> um, and it, I let, one of my favorite things now is to go, is to see all the different places that everyone's gone. But it, it was interesting in that moment in real time to have people be making such different choices and kind of have to continually come back to like, well, why am I doing this? Um, because I, I did feel like I was at a point where I, I easily would have had enough sort of reason to say, nope, okay, this was, <laughs> this is the career ending injury or this is, this is the reason why it didn't happen. Um, but I just couldn't let go of it. I just felt like, you know, it was at the end of the day, I, I, I would still come back to that kid in the living room that it was just like, well, I can do that anywhere. Like really, I'm, I'm after this professional contract. I want a job. I want theaters to perform in. I want to be a part of productions for audiences and getting to be a part of art being made. But the reason I first got into this was what I would feel when I would lose myself in music in my parents' living room as a child. And ultimately, I know I can do that anywhere. And so finding that and taking ownership of that made me feel like, well, they can't take that from me. <laughs> so even, even if they say no, even if I can't get back from this injury, even if no one will give me a contract, like I still know there's a way for me to somehow, you know, tap into and be connected to, to what I love the most. That wasn't that wasn't all I wanted to do, <laughs> but I think identifying what was the purest thing at the heart of it, what was at the core of it, then made me feel empowered to be like, okay, well, if I know stripped down to its like purest form that this is the thing I care the most about, then anything that comes on top of that, a professional contract, someone actually paying me to do this will be icing on the cake because ultimately they still can't you know, even if I'm limping around with this injury, they still can't take away. Um, again, the, the thing I'm still able to tap into as a, a little kid in my living room thing to Tchaikovsky. Sure. And but, so between that and that final dance that you mentioned, what uh, defining moments or experiences stand out to you? I, I, you know, I did, so what, with a lot of the freelancing that I was doing, um, uh, the, the parts that I was usually dancing were um, principal and soloist roles. And so I, I did um, wrestle a lot with, with fear of performing. I was often, um, you know, you, so then you get what you've dreamed and, and asked for, and then you find yourself in this moment of being like, I'm terrified to go out and be the person that everyone's focusing on and what if I make the mistake and what if I fall out of that turn and what if I get that wrong and um and that's so counter to why I was doing it too so I would really um kind of struggle with that tension of like okay well so if the thing that mattered most to me was like this feeling of getting lost in music and finding myself and now I'm sitting here being like I've got to go out on stage and be stressed about doing it perfectly and like what if I get it wrong and that's counter to why I got into it in the first place so what am I doing and so I would really um that was always a challenge for me was to get myself into the moment where I was not only going to deliver an optimal performance and the performance that was going to be hopefully um the best for the audience and that I was going to feel good about but that was also true to why I was supposed to be doing it in the first place and that was really that was a struggle and I think it's a it's a balance between having enough preparation like rehearsing really well and and um, and putting in all of the work and being devoted and committed to that. But then ultimately you have this moment where, and, and it's something that I've talked about since in, as an entrepreneur and as an owner and called it like the step on the stage moment, but where you put in all of this hard work, you put in all this preparation and you're standing in the wings and the conductor's playing the music or 
leading the music and there, there is like rationally there's this part of you that's like I could just stay back here <laughs> you know I mean oh, yeah. I'm probably in trouble <laughs> kind of embarrassing, but like where it does almost feel like pretty irrational that you would go out on stage you're like I'm really gonna go out in front of all these people and do this thing and um and yet you know you have to just sort of take deep breaths rely on your preparation um, know that like what's going to make it exciting and magical is that it's unpredictable and that it's not going to be perfect. Um, and that's what, what actually is part of what makes it more real and more magical and then just go for it. And it's like that and, and, and knowing that it's been interesting to realize now, now that I'm not performing and now that I face other challenges as an entrepreneur that I had so much training for that from you know the time that I was young and started performing but like that there's always is this actual this this specific moment where something in you clicks and you're like I'm going out there <laughs> I'm going to go step on the stage despite the fact that you know a more sane person might not <laughs> I'm gonna go for it and so is this around the time you're transitioning into your business yeah, so um, I started Choo Choo School about in the last three years of my performing career. So Choo Choo School it turned 12, year, 12 years old in February. We hadn't been advertising that whole time. Um, so now we're, um, yep, that's, that's a, a photo of me doing um, Dew Drop and the Nutcracker. Um, and so that was, there was a period of about three years there where I would um, you know, leave my work at teacher school and, and run things remotely to, to go off and rehearse and perform for performances in performances as well. And then, um, and then I finally retired. I have, um, my oldest son is turning 11 next week and he was three years old when I retired because we wanted to, um, try for another baby. And I just figured I, I wasn't going to manage performing and motherhood to more than one child with teacher school as well. And it was, pretty fortunate that we did because that one other baby ended up being twins. So <laughs> I think it would have been a horse for <laughs> If I hadn't planned on it, I think it would have been a horse for Tell us a little bit, you know, people, you sent us this photo kind of represented, you know, uh, obviously your dance career and experience, but also resonated with starting, you know, a, a business and becoming an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm, this is one of this is one of my favorite moments. This actually is the role that I danced in my retirement performance. So last, the very last thing that I performed was this this part in the Nutcracker, and it was it was truly one of my very favorite things to dance because it's just it's just a joyful piece of choreography. You guys have heard me mention Tchaikovsky a few times. He he's my favorite composer, and Nutcracker is very famously you know pretty the music you hear in shopping malls at the holidays, but. <laughs> to listen to it a lot of the nutcracker even though it's overplayed is just really stunning music um and this moment especially there's this part at the end where the, the dewdrop she's just does all these um these leaps uh that's a, a soda shot where i i would just i would feel like i was actually flying um and so it was it was very um this was sort of this part that this photograph is of the sort of the the reward at the end, even though you're exhausted because you get to sort of fly through the end. And I, and I do have like very vivid memories of my last performance of it, of feeling myself do it for the last time and feeling like, oh, just soak this up. <laughs> <laughs> All so, you know, you're, you decide to start to choose school and uh, are still, you know, a, a ballet dancer. What 
you, you've kind of mentioned this a little bit, but what really motivated you to start this school? Yeah, I mean, so I really, I, I did, it really was the two, um, sort of the, the, the dual pillars of it that I saw, I had this very sort of mission-driven piece of it that was just, that it was what I believed in most about ballet, um, was making space in children's lives for creativity and joy, and I, I hoped that, and I still hope that all kids have that living room that I did, but if they didn't, then I wanted to make it, <laughs> you know, and I was like, that's this is and that and that I felt very strongly too that whether or not I had a career in professional in performing um in dance if I whether or not I had a performing career in ballet that that experience of being able to do that would have been just as formative you know I think that um that being able to have those moments of, of really just connecting to something um you know innate for kids and, and to, to be given space to do that is so important. And that, that everything that ballet taught me um, later on, but, but even just as a young child, that that truly would have been just as important and a part of my life, even if I hadn't had a performing career. So I felt that part very strongly. And then I guess the, um, the entrepreneur that I secretly suspected was inside of me for a long time, but hadn't really been doing anything with just really saw this hole in the market. I mean, it was it, it was very clear looking at these other schools that this was such a neglected area. Um, most dance schools are traditionally run by um, former dancers. And so branding isn't always our expertise. So there was a hole in the market and there was a real lack of messaging around what dance schools were doing, any, you know, to even try and, and reach um, you know, all the families that I felt like we could be reaching. And I just, I found myself being really intrigued by that. I like both filling the hole and then also this, this whole concept of, of, of messaging um, what I believed in for, for families, that, that that seemed like a really intriguing challenge and one that I wanted to take on. So um, I was telling my husband, because I, you know, like I said, I was still dancing. I said, hey, I think I, I think I thought of what I want to do when I retire. I think I want to start this boutique ballet school. And, and that's how I would describe it too, is that it was like a, you know, boutique uh, dance education experience. Um, and everything about it was small and cozy and, um, and whimsical and nurturing. And so I was telling him all about it. And he said, well, why wait? <laughs> and that was sort of the, um, we, you know, we sort of, we started looking at spaces in San Francisco um, with the idea that we would maybe open the next fall. And we ended up opening within a few months. Um, and it, that, it was fall when we were having these conversations and we opened up the first teacher school in San Francisco um, in February. And that was February of, of 2008. Wow. So tell us about the beginning of Tutu School and being an entrepreneur. You said that you kind of felt like there was this entrepreneur inside of you somewhere. What were some of the skills that you think, you know, being a ballet dancer mapped over well um, to being an entrepreneur and kind of helped you do that? And was there anything that you felt like, man, I wasn't prepared for this? I think, I think there are lots of things that, that 
being a ballet dancer prepared me for when it comes to being an entrepreneur. And uh, there are some things that I was woefully um, unprepared for. I, I remember, so one of the things we're proud of now for our franchise system is that we have our we have proprietary software for running our, um, our whole class management system and it integrates with our website and our registration system. We have an internal platform for training and like a hub for our owners for all the resources. So we're actually like very proud of our tech now. And when I first launched, I literally had like separate word docs for each class. Like I, didn't even, I didn't even know how to use Excel. Um, so there were some things that I was very unprepared for. Um, but I think, I think the work ethic is an obvious thing. You know, I, just, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't afraid of the fact that it was going to be lots of, of long, hard hours. And, and I wasn't shy about that. I think that that's something that translates really easily from being a professional dancer to entrepreneurialism. I think, um, you know, some, uh, being being afraid of failure but still doing it anyway i think that you know that ties in a lot with the, the step on the stage moment i was talking about that i was i was familiar with the idea that i could be afraid that something wouldn't work um and that i still wanted to do it anyway and um i think that was that was really huge and so i'm curious did the your uh training as a ballerina um or ballet dancer when that you mentioned not being afraid to fail or if it did fail or you didn't do it quite as well as you wanted, you could always still get something perhaps positive or at least a learning experience out of it. Um, do you think that doing that training over those years instilled in you that um, ability to do that or would you attribute that in part to your training? Um, definitely. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think, and I think also the idea that um, that I, I also was more afraid of the idea of not trying, right? I, like, I think that that was always such a theme for me with, just with my whole career, the idea that I, I knew and was a, a very afraid of the idea that I might not get a contract in my, you know, the first company and, and that I might not be able to, to have a performing career in ballet. I was definitely very afraid of that, but I was more afraid of not going for it. I was definitely much more afraid of the idea that I would live my life regretting not having gone for it. And I, I felt that way from the beginning of teacher school and, and sort of every step along the way, like, you know, we opened the first one um, 12 years ago, we started franchising six years ago, the road to getting um, franchises launched was incredibly daunting. Um, and I still had very much had that sense that it was always, you know, I was afraid of of failing, I was a, in a, it feels similar sometimes to performing. You're on a public stage. It will be, especially in this day and age where you know our family and friends and everybody can track everything on social media. Um, it, it feels like a more public, you know, potential for failure. But I was much more afraid of of not going for it. Yeah, and we're launching uh, the podcast as we speak, obviously. And uh, it was the same idea. Um, it's never a failure if it never gets launched, right? So there's always the, I just step back, then no one will know that it didn't go well. And obviously right. we hope it doesn't, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I definitely can relate, particularly on that angle. So. Yeah, yeah. What is it like being an, an entrepreneur and also uh, in particular franchise owner, right? Cause I, I, you know, I think that's a little bit of a, a kind of separate breed, right? To being an entrepreneur. It's really, yeah, no, it really is. It's interesting because, um, so being, I mean, I love being an entrepreneur. I think it's interesting to so both my husband and I, both of our, our, 
all of our parents have been in business for themselves. So like we do have that, which is interesting, which is that like sometimes when people say like, it wouldn't scare you, either of you going into business for yourself, he's a photographer, or the idea that you would in a marriage have two of you being self-employed. And there is that, that it never felt super weird to us that we would kind of figure out what we wanted to do and then make it <laughs> because we had these examples in our parents, which I do feel very fortunate for. What's interesting now as a franchisor is then a big part of my job is not just um, obviously overseeing the schools that I, I own and I'm responsible for directly um, and not just taking care of the brand for everybody, which is, is I think what I see as my sort of my number one job is taking care of the brand and steering our mission. Um, but but is really helping all of these individual owners on their entrepreneurial journeys, um, which has become, it's, it's such an honor for me. It's so, it's so amazing to get to walk that with them. But there are also moments, I mean, so right now we're recording this at the beginning of April. We're um, very much in the midst of, of COVID and our response to that. And I was saying to my husband the other day, I said, it's not just that I'm, you know, I'm on a roller coaster every day, but then I might, you know, sort of get to some plateau and then I'm hopping on a call with another owner. I'm on their roller coaster too, <laughs> you know, that I'm, I'm very much riding um, the sort of entrepreneurial adventures of all of these different tutu school owners. And I feel so deeply invested in their locations um, as a part of our broader tutu school community, but also just because they got into this to be, you know, entrepreneurs and, and, and be a teacher school owner with me and with this company and with this brand. And so it is, it's a really unique thing that you sort of, you not only have your own entrepreneurial journey, but you take on the journeys of all of these other entrepreneurs um, who've, who've trusted in you. And it, it's a relationship unlike any other I've experienced because they're not, they're certainly not employees. They're owners and entrepreneurs in their own right. They do look to you though for guidance, obviously. And there are times where you have to issue it with the you know sort of sense of protecting the brand or preserving the brand or strengthening the brand so you are in some ways at some points telling them what to do <laughs> but you're also um really actively working to support them I, I learn from them all the time i get amazing ideas from them um and so they're they're neither employees or clients they're sort of this this weird thing in between um that's pretty amazing but also certainly you know has its own challenges what has been sorry go <laughs> pause for each other you go <laughs> what has been uh one of the maybe most challenging uh experiences you've had as a franchise owner i think um it, it, it was a bit my biggest challenge but it's the thing that i'm sort of the most proud of and grateful for now is that in the beginning i do think i don't think i ever looked at franchising as like you know when people talk about um, methods of passive income like this idea that you're gonna you know i don't think i ever looked at it as like i was gonna just sort of create some like you know online course that people would pay for and then i'd be done i, I always knew that there would be obviously a lot of active engagement going back and forth but i do think that i, I probably underestimated how much it the I would want to make sure that the Chuju School brand and the Chuju School franchise package continue to evolve and grow so that it wasn't just, okay, here's this business in a box and like, you know, send in your royalties and tell us how you're doing every once in a while, but that there would be so much interactive ongoing support and that we would keep making sure that, that aspects of our program and our technology and our training were always evolving. Um, and so I think I underestimated that in the, in the beginning 
just how much of that I would naturally want to do that, that regardless of what the franchisees were expecting, that it was like something that was going to be important to me to make sure that the program was always evolving and, and growing. Um, and so that's, that's been a lot of work. And I think, um, that's okay but i think that part of what i was was thinking in the beginning too was it would just be like well this is how i've always done it this is how we run two to school successfully and here you go here's your business in the box congratulations and what i really had to open myself up to and what i'm so grateful for now is that by being in this relationship with all these different owners we get incredible ideas we'll have people pilot things at their teacher school that end up being revolutionary for other locations elsewhere in the system um that in the beginning i had a really hard time you know taking a deep breath because you feel so possessive of this brand that you created and this business that you birthed and you're like don't don't do it any differently than i ever did it you know and like you know now learning the skills of like taking some deep breaths and actually trying to examine something objectively and saying wow no we've never done it that way and i think there's a really good idea in there and like how could we examine that and roll that out for other people has been i, I think we've grown exponentially like not you know not just in terms of locations but also in in terms of revenue and the strength of all the locations because of things that have grown out of individual owners experimenting and um and playing and growing and evolving and i had to, to really open myself up to that or we would have just you know always done things the way that I, I did it which isn't necessarily the best thing i was wondering how your uh, perfectionism matched the needs <laughs> but you explained it very well there so. Yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> the good as i talk about it with my clients the good and the bad side of perfectionism right <laughs> exactly so what have you learned about yourself throughout your journey? Oh my goodness. What haven't I learned? Um, <laughs> I'm still very much learning. Um, I, every day, I mean, I think this new, um, the having to respond to something so unprecedented, you know, like, like the COVID situation. Um, I still feel like I'm in the midst of learning so much right now. I think, um, I, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned sort of about myself as a leader and that I maybe didn't have to um, face as much when I was dancing is sort of is is really my um, my reaction and my responses to things. I mean, an example I just gave that that yeah, I would my initial reaction to the idea of somebody trying something that was different from what I used to do was not always positive. Um, but that I, you know, I do have a, a more um, so really realizing for, it was key for me to realize that 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 was my biological impulse that and that I tend to be somebody who views anything that's sort of unfamiliar <laughs> as a potential threat that I'm like immediately go into fight or flight like what there is a saber-toothed cat in my cave and what am I going to do about it and that I could be somebody where it would be like anything from an email that was maybe just suggesting something uncomfortable to like a, you know a, a major um crisis point and and then that was not going to be sustainable as a leader right that like I couldn't and it and and that it wasn't that I wasn't even going to feel a flash of it but I needed to learn how to move um more fluidly and smoothly from that moment of of there's a saber tooth cap in my cave to, okay, what, what is the actual problem here? What do I need to, how can I address it? And then even move then shift from there into what is the, what are the potential opportunities to come out of this? Where, where are the possibilities and, and, and not, you know, how can I grow from it? How can I learn from it? But also like, what, what am I maybe not seeing here? That's an opportunity. 
Um, and I think, so I don't feel like I've erased that panic fight or flight moment that I still often feel in a leadership role. I still think it's very much there. And I've noticed right now with this situation that it's so heightened. And so I'm really having to like, um, tune into that because I, I am kind of in a place of responding to almost everything. <laughs> like, like there's that saber tooth cat in my cave, but I think in general, as a leader, that is something that I'm proud of that I'm, I've been working through is the idea that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really committed to the idea that there's, there is always a solution. And, um, and I just am learning to sort of breathe more deeply through those, those initial moments of whatever fight or flight I'm feeling, and then try and transition into what's next. So when you were a ballet dancer, did you not have to tune into that as much? You know, it's interesting. I think I've, I've thought about that. I don't know if it's just because you're kind of continually um, existing, like in rehearsals and performances at this sort of already this like state of being engaged in, um, in some more intensity. I don't know if that's what it's about. It did feel different, I think. Um, I also think to some degree, like you, you feel more in control, like when you're actually in the studio or on stage, you can be really nervous and afraid, but you feel more in control of your own destiny in the sense that it's like, you might make a mistake, you might fall out of a turn, you might miss some piece of choreography, but like you're still making your body move through whatever the challenge is. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think I've, you know, you know, maybe like working hard for a role you didn't get or not agreeing with some casting decision or, the way you know whatever you might have some outside challenges like that but in terms of the actual dancing it still felt like something you, you by and large could still be in charge of manipulating and controlling your own body and your own movement and I think now in business it's it's more in learning how to manage sort of the the outer forces that I don't have as much control over that is maybe led me to to this feeling of a uh, of fight or flight more often so business is more stressful overall? <laughs> I think it's in fact so interesting. I I think I think just different I think just different. I think they're just different kinds of stress. I think there's um I think what feels maybe like more responsibility now to me is is you know definitely that I I feel so responsible to so many people. I think I feel the responsibility for, you know, all of these owners, for the, my employees at my teacher schools and at teacher school franchises, um, certainly to um, my family. <laughs> my income is certainly a lot more of our, our family picture than it was when I was a struggling artist. <laughs> now in my new role of, uh, in business, I, there's a lot more responsibility maybe than, um, again in in ballet if, if it is a, i i think the moments that you're on stage and that you're performing are incredibly selfless and you are able to really give something to other people through your art i think a lot of the preparation and the rehearsing and the whole career um can be very self-focused so without realizing it and not and that's not to say that dancers and artists are selfish or self-centered, but like without having a negative connotation to it, a lot of the work is very self-centered, right? Like you're continually working on refining this art and this instrument that's literally your body um, and, and the product that you put out through it. Um, so I do think that, I don't know, it's not that it wasn't stressful, but I just think that it was, it felt more like it was just me on the line as opposed to now where I, I do feel more responsibility to so many people. 
how mm -hmm. confident did you feel as a ballet dancer and how confident do you feel now as a business owner and leader? Oh, um, I think like, I, you know, it's so interesting. It's like, you know, like imposter syndrome is such a part of the conversation now, which is so funny to me because I mean, it's not funny. I think it describes a very real thing, but I'm like, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's ballet dancers. <laughs> you know? that's, that's what being a ballet dancer is. I don't know. I mean, it, now with social media and stuff too, I can watch all these incredible dancers who are dancing currently, you know, on their Instagram feeds and stuff too. And, you, and I'll look at them sometimes and be like, well, I'm sure she doesn't have any insecurities because she's so gorgeous. Of course, you know, they all do. And it's so funny. It's like in moments when my friends and I were being honest with each other, when we were performing too, you'd find out like each of us had these things where it would be like, well, I have to wear my leg warmers this way in rehearsal because then nobody sees that like that foot like sickles a little bit or that like we were convinced that like if we got, you know, told in some run through that we had to like take our skirt off or take our leg warmers off, like that magic thing was the thing that was keeping everyone from seeing whatever this like huge flaw was. So I'm like, I think ballet dancers basically like invented and perfected working through imposter syndrome <laughs> because of course then what we're presenting is this whole like incredibly graceful and confident and um you know absolutely in command of our performance persona while at the same time if you actually talk to them you'd find out like yeah if that leg warmer comes off like the whole gig is up everyone's gonna know i'm a fraud um so i think i think um i think that i, I it's not that i don't have moments like that in um in business but I think that that feeling of being like especially um, vulnerable and sort of exposed was something that was so unique in, in ballet and like in such an extreme way that, um, that that was, I guess, probably really great preparation for, for this. And so now, um, even in, in scary moments where I maybe, you know, feel like I'm lacking confidence, I, I still feel well prepared for it by having gone through that. And it doesn't feel quite as, as frightening maybe as that did. And what advice would you have uh, for both an aspiring ballet performer as well as an entrepreneur? I, I think they would be the same thing. I think it's, it's to really know why you're doing what you're doing. Um, I mean, that was, again, that was really, that's what got me through those years of um, not knowing if I was going to have a career and trying to just keep knocking on doors and auditioning for jobs and get through injury was this idea of, okay, well, why am I doing it? Why does it matter? Is it just to achieve the thing that I set out to achieve, which that would be fine too. But like, for me, it really wasn't. It was about chasing this, this fundamental love I had of, of how it made me feel to move to music and wanting more of that and wanting to make that my whole career, my whole existence. Um, and I think now in, in business, it's the same thing. I mean, for me, it happens that it's also the same thing. I'm trying to provide that for children, but that has been so key because I, there are other things I love about being in business. There are other things that motivate me. It turns out I like, I really like building. It turns out I love crafting a brand and messages and I am loving building a company and that's become incredibly exciting to me, but it's been really interesting again during this whole COVID situation to realize like, the reason why we're doing what we're doing and the reason why I believe in it is because we want to make space in children's lives for creativity and joy and for them to connect with music and movement the same way I did. So we are streaming all of our classes live right now, you know, online 
are teachers sheltering in place at home and they're still teaching these kids who are sheltering in place too. Um, and, and so when I've had moments of, you know, incredible stress about how to guide the company through the challenge, coming back to that and knowing, okay, well, why at the end of the day are we doing this? And when we're distilling it down to its purest, most fundamental form, what is this about has been so grounding. Um, and just is like, it's such a great guiding force when things get tough. So I, I really think that would be my advice to really anyone pursuing anything, but definitely ballet dancers and, and entrepreneurs is just know why you're doing it, you know, and, and, um, and don't let go of that and like keep reconnecting to it however you can. That really resonates with me. I'm also working on a documentary project and there was a particularly stressful day and our consulting producer had a mantra to just tell a good story. That was his mantra. Mm -hmm. And on that particularly stressful day, I almost, like you said, almost didn't step on the stage, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I just started thinking about that mantra and it really got me through that day. And then from that point on, I kind of viewed it the way you're talking about it really, uh, why am I doing this? And to tell the story first, everything else is just uh, a sidebar, basically. So. Right, right. And it's so easy. I mean, like even when we're not dealing with unprecedented global pandemics, like there's just always so much going on and there are so many things to be worried about that it's so, it's, it's depressingly easy to lose sight of something that simple that's so foundational and so important and so very much at the heart of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but, and, and, all, and sometimes for good reasons too, like I said, like I, I only spent the last couple years at Tutu School too, like really redefining our statement of mission and identity. And it was interesting to see it was like, well, things have been going really well and I've been really excited about what we were doing, but I'd also kind of just been so focused on all these other things I discovered that I loved. You can even be distracted from sort of your, your foundational and fundamental purpose by good things, I think, like just discovering that I loved doing this and I loved growing this and I loved, you know, that I somehow still wasn't staying as connected to like, yeah, but if it was just one room somewhere <laughs> and me with some scarves and some music and, and some wands, that would still be in keeping with this mission. And, um, and I think that's important to stay in touch with too. Lauren, do you want to delve into the our next question. Our debate. Um, so Kevin and I met in grad school when we were researching expert performance and you know there's this tension right between uh, beliefs about how much nature versus nurture has to do with it right. Uh, some people believe on the very extreme nature side you know you're, you're born with gifts or, or whatever. Um, and on the extreme nurture side is it doesn't matter what you're born with or who you are. It just matters kind of what you do, right? If you had to put a percentage for yourself of nature nurture, what percent would you give to nature? What percent would you give to nurture? Oh, that's so, and that's a good one. <laughs> um, I think it's so it's tricky to tease apart and you know and especially because um like for me i also feel like again i've really i've had the privilege of like i grew up with these examples of entrepreneurs i married somebody who'd grown up with entrepreneurs i i think about it a lot um in terms of that moment where i i told andrew my husband what i wanted to do and he said why you know why wait because I, I, I think, I guess I think about your very question because I, I, I've asked myself like, okay, well, what if his response had been negative? Like not only what if it hadn't been like, great, let's look at spaces, but what if it had been 
uh, really, like really, you know, and, and that I really want to believe. And I, I think based on what I went through with having a performing career that I would have found, you know, I would have found my way there eventually anyway, but there's that, there's that part of me that doubts it. You know, I do think that, that whether, I think that there's a lot that's, that's innate in me that makes me just not take no for an answer and want to just keep pushing and driving. Um, but I also think that I've been so lucky to be surrounded by support, the support of my parents. I mean, I also like when I look at um, my career in ballet, if, if they had been discouraging, they certainly, again, like weren't scary dance parents, but they were so encouraging and supportive. And if they had had been more discouraging, you know, would I still have found a way to push through? I don't know. I don't know if it would have been possible. And, you know, and same thing then with my support network when I, when I had this idea for, for Chuchu School. And, and then I, I think it's also really hard to tease apart the, um, the layers of privilege, right? So like I, um, you know, I had that support just from the people in my life who mattered to me, who didn't laugh at me and tell me it was a crazy idea, but said like, yes, I'm gonna help you do it. Um, but then they also, you know, like I, we took out a very, very small line of credit to start Chichi School, <laughs> laughably small now. <laughs> if, I, if I'd known what I, we just got pretty lucky. Um, but, but I mean, I, it was, um, nobody had to co-sign for it or anything, but it was also, it was an introduction that my family made for me to a bank that otherwise would have had no reason to trust or believe in me. I went back and found the business plan I submitted to them and it was in pink and purple font. Um, I mean, <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think those are the, some of the things that I have trouble teasing apart. Yes, I want to believe that, um, that I would have found a way no matter what, but I'm definitely not blind to the fact that I was very lucky to have so much support around me and, and a lot of privilege too, where people were able to say like, you know, you should consider this thing or you should talk to this person. Um, you know, uh, when I started franchising, my best friend had already franchised her business very successfully and was able to help mentor me. Like that, how do you factor in an advantage like that, you know? Um, so I, I, I definitely don't feel comfortable saying it's, it's just all stuff I had within me. And what about with dancing? Same. I think more so. So I think um, it, it, interesting because I, I mean, I think in terms of like, <laughs> same in terms of the, the, the sort of weighing what was my drive and, and then what was also so the support of people around me. There, I think what's interesting, and so I definitely don't have a traditional ballet dancer's body. I'm a bigger bone, bigger muscle girl, um, and tall too. I'm, not so much anymore, but the time I was dancing, I'm 5'8", and that was really tall for a ballet dancer. So those are some pretty big challenges for, um, for get, having a professional career. And there were plenty of people who told me like it was gonna maybe be too hard. Um, you know, and, and other, I mean, there's just like, there's a very specific physical facility that people are after in the ballet world. And, and I didn't have any of those things, the, the positives to an extreme either. Um, except turnout, I have pretty good turnout. Um, <laughs> so I think if you're looking at like a nature versus nurture from that sense of like nature, I was not gifted the things that would make it like easier for me. Um, I do think that's where, um, in terms of my performing career where drive like really really came into to play but even then it's like you know I think that the drive kept me going and kept me sort of like 
on the field waiting for opportunity, but then the opportunities that came my way, I was just really lucky too. I mean, I was, who could have predicted that again, this like arts facility would open up in my hometown, um, that where then I would have all these incredible performing experiences and got to go back and, and be this like, you know, hometown girl returns and, and performs these, these amazing ballets with, in this incredible facility. Like that was, that was so lucky. And, um, and definitely not something I created. It was more just that like, I think my internal drive and not taking no for an answer all of the years leading up to that <laughs> put me in the right place to be able to take advantage of some of these opportunities. Is there anything that we haven't asked that you feel like is important to, to share? Hmm. You guys have asked really good questions. So I, <laughs> I cannot think of anything. I feel like we've, we've covered a lot. No, I, um, I think it's been a great conversation. And what is the biggest takeaway from your story, would you say? I mean, um, I mean, aside from like really, again, staying so focused on why you do what you do, um, why, it, why it matters, um, I, think, I think maybe what we just said about my story, I do think, um, I, I think that finding that drive within yourself to continue just pushing forward so that you will, you will be there. I mean, it's, it's like, what, you know, if you're having the nature versus nurture or the, the luck versus hard work debate and argument, I guess like where I do, where it's, where, what I, the thread I see in my own story and sort of where I come down on it, I do really think is um, that I think I've been very lucky and I think I've been given a lot of opportunity, but I think that I had to keep myself in the game, you know, and that I really, um, that there were lots of moments where I, I absolutely could have turned around and gone home or, you know, folded my cards and um, and so I think knowing that that if you if you if you do truly want something if you are pursuing a path if you're pursuing a career a project a, a, a dream that so much of the time the important thing is really just to go after it I had this um, moment earlier I guess it was the end of 2019. So part, a part of my story had been that I was really in love with the New York City Ballet when I was training as an adolescent dancer. I mean, like obsessed. <laughs> and for, um, for um, a lot of, I mean, New York City Ballet is an incredibly difficult company to get into. But again, with my physical facility, it was like a near impossibility that I was just not gonna ever be like their type of dancer, even if um, my ability rose to a level where they would would want me at their their school and eventually their company. And so, of course, like that only made me fall in love with it more and want it more. And uh, and and it, there were a few years in my adolescence where it was really like the whole focus of my being. And and almost something I was like already grieving as a teenager was the fact that this was this dream that wasn't going to come true. Um, and so then it, and and then it was. I ended up having a very fulfilling performing career that I felt very lucky for and transitioned into this business and feel pretty great about my life and where it's ended up now personally too. And so New York City Ballet isn't something that's gotten a lot of, of my time and attention lately. And then um, we're in the process of opening up our first uh, tutu school in New York right now. Our tutu school is going to open up in Park Slope once we're on the other side of this COVID situation. And so I was out in New York 
a lot um, getting ready for that and um, went back to New York City Ballet for the first time in ages and was just spending more time in Lincoln Center where they're based and stuff and just had this interesting moment of realizing I, I absolutely think that because that was so tied in with my my path of pursuing a professional career in ballet for a long time too it's so interesting that just by going after something that hard letting myself dream that dream that was again pretty impossible but really pursuing it with everything that i had led me on this whole other path that i never would have been on that that's gotten me to where i am now into this place that i wouldn't trade for anything and so i really feel like more than anything that the answer is, you know, I, I don't know what the, the perfect breakdown of, of nature versus nurture is, but it's like, just go after it. Like, just put yourself on the path, just set out towards something. I don't know if you're going to get there, but I think that in the process of pursuing it, um, you're going to find yourself somewhere pretty amazing. Awesome story. So, yeah, and that's a great, I think, parting message for our listeners for sure. Uh, Genevieve, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great to hear more about you and Tutu School, about your ballet story, and of course, your story as an entrepreneur. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. The Path Stilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved.